Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Brian Breggi for a conversation about the founding of the Republic of Florence. Dr. Breggi was on the show previous uh, in an episode that published on June 26, 2021. And in that episode, we had covered... Florence as well, but more specific, more specifically commerce in Florence during the Renaissance period. And I thought it would be interesting from a publishing perspective to spend some more time on this um, uh, topic. And Dr. Breggi agreed to come back on the show. And, and so as I mentioned in this episode, we are going to uh, rewind a little bit and in period-wise and talk more about how the Republic of Florence came into existence. Dr. Breggi is Assistant Professor of History at Syracuse University, based in the U.S. He specializes in medieval and early modern Europe and diplomatic and imperial history. He has written numerous publications and has a new book that just came out this month, and uh, in terms of what month this is, depending on um, when you're listening to the, uh, the episode, this month meaning July 2021, and prior to this episode starting, Dr. Uh, Breggi showed me the book. I saw it in hardcover, and it is entitled Tuscany in the Age of Empire, which was published by Harvard University Press. And Dr. Breggi joins the show today from the state of New York in the U.S. Welcome back on the show, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that generous introduction. You are welcome, Brian. It is wonderful to connect with you again and to talk about um, Florence, the Republic of Florence. So, uh, I'm going to probably ask a, a question that I'm sure I asked, um, could have even been the first uh, question I asked uh, in the last episode. I'm not not fully positive, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if this was the case. Um, to create, and, and we're going to chat more about the founding of the Republic of Florence today, some of those circumstances, and maybe work our way into a little bit of uh, what, was, what was happening in the early years. But to create sufficient background and context for, for the conversation, Brian, can you share uh, what the Republic of Florence was, and then we'll work our way into the details around the uh, the founding period. Uh, absolutely, I'm happy to do so. Um, so uh, we had sort of two different pieces of that, that definition, which might need to be parsed, uh, both on the word Republic and on the word Florence. Uh, so at the beginning of, of the period we're talking about in the 12th century, uh, we're really talking about an independent city regime uh, known as a comune. Uh, by the end of the period of, of the Republic in the 16th century, uh, we are talking about a, a regional state which dominates most but not quite all uh, of Tuscany. So uh, there, in both cases, we speak of Florence, but the, the boundaries have, have expanded. Um, and then on, on this question of the Republic, the definition of, of what it means to be a republic changes during this period uh, from a, a different earlier definition, which I'll talk about in just a second, to our, our modern one. Uh, so in brief, uh, in and, and this is uh, associated with the work of, of James Hankins, in um, medieval and ancient usage, a republic simply meant any legitimate constitutional order, that is anyone that serves the public good. So in, in um, Latin, the original sense, 
a republic which is a race publica, that is the, the public thing. But over the course of this period, actually in Florence itself, uh, this term is redefined and Florence requires a new, you might say, more modern meaning of republic. Uh, this is done by an important humanist named Leonardo Bruni, who translates uh, Aristotle's sense of republic as uh, instead of just any legitimate form of government, as the, the good form of the rule of the many. Uh, and by the end of this period, so, so we're looking at the early 16th century, uh, Machiavelli begins the prince by dividing all regimes into uh, monarchies and republics uh, and suggests that in effect a republic is in our modern sense any uh, constitutional government which is not a monarchy or not a, a closed regime. Uh, this is important then because the republics in the Renaissance can be uh, aristocratic and they can be governed by a particular class. Uh, these are middle class guild republics. Um, there are revolutionary republics. There's a lot of different forms of it, and Florence really mutates through most of them in the course of its, its sort of long and turbulent history as a republic. Is the concept then the the, the, the term, maybe not concept, but the term republic? Is is that a uh, neologism then when when speaking about Florence? In other words, like when they when they created this state in the 12th century, and we're going to work our way obviously into those into those details. Um, you had mentioned, for instance, commune as a, as a term. Uh, were were they were they in the early years calling it? Um, and obviously, it was probably it wouldn't have been in, in English, but you can bring that into your in, into your response, right? Um, but were they calling it? Uh, and and we're using English for for the show. Were they calling it a republic in those early years? Uh, the, the general sense of the documentation in the early period is spotty, but the general sort of historiographic consensus is no. Uh, so the, um, not at least in any sense in which we would recognize it. So comune is the, the standard form about this. Sometimes also the, um, what we would translate as something like regime, or the, uh, sometimes we, we translate this as a sort of city-state or city government. Uh, and it, indeed, it's, uh, it, it's at no point in time is it democratic in a modern sense, although it does have um, wide participation and does not have a monarch. So in that sense, we would recognize it as a republic. But that, that's a term which they only really mobilize um, in, we might say, uh, propagandistic or, or politicized uh, sense in, in the 15th century as part of Florence's uh, struggle with the, the much more autocratic regime in Milan. Uh, and there, sort of, Florence laid hold of uh, a legitimizing classical tradition to sort of rename the regime, which is in Florence. Uh, Florence has a, a tradition in the really from the 14th century to the early 16th century of having very distinguished uh, humanist scholars serve as the head of the civil administration called the, the chancellor, people uh, like Coluccio Salutati and Leonardo Bruni. Uh, and so they, they have uh, some of the leading scholars of the, the Renaissance uh, at their disposal and 
it's these scholars who are, of course, reviving uh, classical antiquity and reviving this language who first uh, appropriate some of this classical usage and then um, mold it and reshape it. And, and you know, Machiavelli himself, while well, not the first chancellor, is the second chancellor. He's also part of the same um, administrative apparatus. So we might say then that uh, for the 12th century, it, it's a neologism, or it's a uh, it's not quite uh, accurate to say uh, Republican in a modern sense as, as a category that they used, but by the uh, by the 15th, certainly by the 16th century, um, yes. And, and that's been a matter of, of changing ideas as well as changing nature of the regime. In modern times, presently, there is consensus when people are having conversations and they're having constructive conversations for... Um, and to be colloquial, um, perfectly uh, known and acceptable to call this this period with this state the Republic of Florence. Yes, yes, that's that is natural, and that's that's totally fine. Um, and, and you know, in terms of modern usage, um, Florence is certainly a republic, uh, and and I suppose as now um, republics can have uh, different forms. Um, so, but they would. Uh, yeah, I guess that that's right. Let's believe it at that. Yeah, but, but yes, this would probably be legitimately called a republic. Okay, and, and to make sure that it's um, clearly outlined for, for everybody and myself, um, what what period are we speaking about? And can you describe the geographic demarcation of, of, of the republic? And please, if it changes in, in that period at all, please bring that into your answers as as, uh, as well and then of course we'll, we'll soon start working our way into the de- details on the uh, the early early period absolutely okay uh, so there is uh, some dispute as to the exact origin date 1115 and 1138 are both popular uh, these are in 1115 um, this is at the death of Countess Matilda of Tuscany when Florence, which is fairly late to the city-state party, uh, develops itself as a comune. But it's only in 1138 that we have, as Jean Brucker has shown, our, our first references to, to the consuls. But uh, probably the, the leading current scholar on sort of general Florentine political history, Jamie, sees 1115. So well, let's go with 1115 as, as the sort of start point. Uh, and then conventionally, this public is seen as falling uh, uh, with the, the siege of Florence in 1529 to 1530, although it has a sort of messy end point there. Uh, at the beginning, what we should see is that, that the comune of the 12th century really applies to the city and a very narrow region of countryside with which it is um, linked. And the city is quite small at this stage. So in the 12th century, we should see Florence growing to, at the end of it, perhaps 25 or 30,000 people, perhaps. Uh, in the 13th century, the city itself undergoes a, a dramatic transformation. Uh, and you know, there's sort of a little bit of vagueness about 13th century figures. Uh, but the, the general sense is that Florence's population uh, triples or quadruples and, and it's um, 100,000 and then in fact is above 100,000 before, before the 
black death. Uh, and this, this demographic heft is matched by growth in the countryside nearby, sort of the region known as Contado. Uh, this is always attached to the Comune. And the, the Contado is a region that depends on the direction you go, uh, about 10 to 30 miles from Florence. Uh, and before 1348, uh, Jamie estimates that there's about 300,000 people in the Contago. Uh, so this is very densely populated for um, high medieval uh, Europe, and Florence is in fact one of the, the largest cities in Italy, in fact one of the largest cities in Europe. And it is this um, basis which allows Florence to undergo its sort of first set of expansion to very close by neighboring territories like Pistoia and um, Prato and so forth. So there's this sort of first expansion from 1328 to 1370 to Pistoia, Prato, San Gimignano, Volterra, San There's a bunch of um, small to mid-sized towns to the west of Florence, mostly in the Valdarno and the uh, hill country to the west. Uh, and then Florence's sort of second burst of major territorial growth uh, is from 1384 to 1421, uh, when they pick up Arezzo in 1384, Monte um, Pulciano between 1390 and 1404. Uh, and then the big wins are, are Pisa in 1406 and, and Livorno in 1421. Um, so the, the thing I suppose to bear in mind in this context is that for the whole of the 12th century, Pisa is. Um, in many ways, a, a larger and more important city. Pisa is the, the great port city, a, a rival of Genoa and Venice as a, one of the great maritime republics. And, uh, and it's in the, in the 13th century that, that Florence really balloons in size and comes to to dominate um, to dominate Tuscany and eventually to, to conquer Pisa, uh, much to the resentment of Pisans. Uh, and then Florence more or less retains those territorial boundaries uh, until uh, under Cosimo de' Medici, when you know, one might argue the regime had already fallen, uh, and it becomes in some ways the, the first really stable monarch, um, they, they pick up Siena in 1555. But, uh, so what we're talking about then is uh, a regime which begins in a pretty small city uh, from a modern perspective, even from a 12th century perspective, a pretty modest city. Uh, which then grows to being um, quite a large city by, by medieval standards, uh, and then takes over first sort of most of northern Tuscany, um, except for Lucca, uh, and then by the by the 16th century controls not quite, but nearly all of, of Tuscany. Um, so it's a uh, never a, a great military power or uh, a major state, but by the, the 15th century we tend to see. Florence as being one of the uh, the five sort of leading powers of the, the Italian peninsula, conventionally the, the weakest of the five. Yeah, in eleven fifteen, then circa, was it really um, for the most part the city of of Florence? This this concept of a commune. Yes, so it's the city. So the, so the key distinction in this early period, we might say for the first century, say uh, 1115 until the conventional start of the Gulf Ghibelline 
controversy in Florence, which is traditionally dated to 1216. Um, this is about achieving independence and um, perhaps autonomy and then independence. Uh, so that in principle, all of northern and central Italy, with the exception of Venice and some sliver of its territory, that uh, is all of the territories north of the papal state, uh, are supposed to be part of a Holy Roman Empire. Um, but in the context of the investiture controversy between the sort of reform papacy in the 11th century and uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the cities in particular of Lombardy, so up, up north, really take the lead, and Tuscany follows a little later, um, achieve effective um, military autonomy. Um, and, and the emperor eventually acknowledges um, this uh, uh, state of affairs, although it, it, it is really contested all the way through the, through the 12th century. So the traditional sort of famous date is, is uh, the, the victory of the, the Lombard Comune in 1176 at Legnano. Uh, and so for the whole of the 11th and 12th centuries, so part of the, the question is, is the emperor uh, going to be able to restore imperial authority over these de facto autonomous becoming really independent city-states that have emerged uh, in the 11th and the 12th centuries. Uh, and, and the answer, after some twists and turns, is, is that the emperor is, is unable to do so. Uh, and so from Florence, from 1115 really until say 1197-98, this is a contested issue. Uh, and, and Florence is, is alone among the, the Tuscan cities in sort of refusing to, to swear fealty um, to, to Otto IV in 1198. And so this um, controversy then, the first one is really uh, an alliance of, of those who are in the city against imperial authority. So, uh, Again, the, the Jamie is, and, and Philip Jones have been sort of key about this one. One of the, the important things to bear in mind at this very early stage is that um, Italy is, is quite urbanized, but in a peculiar way. And we have rising commerce and merchants, but the cities are really dominated politically and uh, socially, especially on the early side, by rural landowners um, who often are uh, in the case, they're often knights, um, feudal tenure, uh, in the countryside who live in, in fortified tower houses in the city. Uh, and so there is, in some sense, then a controversy between city and emperor, but it's also a controversy between the official overlord of these um, uh, rural aristocrats living in cities. This is a sort of peculiarly Italian pattern. Um, in alliance with the, the rising merchant classes of the cities uh, against the sort of effective authority of the emperor or his, his designates. So the 12th century is really then a story about um, getting to autonomy. I will have a question or a few follow-up questions regarding their relationship to the Holy Roman Empire. Before we go there, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll certainly cover that more at some point in this conversation. What was before the Republic of Florence? 
so officially Florence is under the, the government of um, Matilda, who's the uh, countess. She's, I guess, officially the Margravine of Tuscany. Uh, the way that the imperial power works in Italy, sort of in practice, uh, is that local bishops and major aristocrats, um, so we might think of uh, people uh, above the level of local lords, uh, but below the level of kings and emperors, so people with titles like count or margrave, which in a later period would have a title like duke, uh, have a lot of effective uh, jurisdictional sort of control and ju- jurisdiction is often fragmented. So in the uh, 10th and 11th centuries in here, in our records are a little spotty, so we sometimes have to draw examples from from different towns and sort of make inferences. The sense is that um, jurisdictional control of the, the city is often split between different authorities. So part of the the innovative quality of the Comune in the 11th and 12th centuries is to, in some sense, insist on a unified urban government, not under the bishop, although some of the early Comune come um, in cooperation with the bishops. And of course, the investiture controversy, the real sort of point of conflict between Pope and Emperor, had been about, well, about power, but also about who gets to appoint senior officials in the church. Uh, and, you know, really, the, the contest behind that for much of the Italian elite uh, is a question of whether local elites are going to be able to control both their own city and their own branches of the church. So the, the senior positions in the church, people like bishops, abbots, and so forth, often get appointed from the same local aristocratic families who had endowed the church. So. There's a kind of power struggle there between, you might say, elements of the, uh, officially of the imperial and church order, but um, between local aristocrats and uh, the, the ostensible uh, sort of overarching power. Uh, so yeah, officially it's, it's part of uh, an empire ruled by a, a local uh, aristocrat uh, in cooperation with uh, bishops uh, and under uh, imperial legal jurisdiction. And, and there are sort of long legacies of that, actually all the way into the 16th century and beyond. Um, there are sort of legal hangovers of Florence and especially Siena's um, connection to the empire. Uh, and so this, this is not really a clean break moment, with sort of, unlike, say, Venice. Uh, where, where Florence is, is really totally detached. All of the states, so Milan, Genoa, Florence, Siena, all of these, these polities of, of northern Italy have sort of lingering connections to the empire where they sort of recognize the emperor's overlordship, but real power slips in the, in the uh, 11th and 12th centuries. This might be re- related. Uh, what was the march of Tuscany and how come when I do a cursory search online, uh, it eleven ninety seven comes up as a date when uh, when it when it ended? So uh, you'll see a, a conflicting date at the beginning of Florence, and it's a nice um, sort of uh, point where we can see the kind of ambiguity around these early periods. So 
the empire is divided up into a series of um, larger constituent units, like counties or margraves and these sorts of things. Um, the territories on the edge of the empire uh, are often called a um, march or a uh, this is kind of administrative uh, division. You, you can see this if you're familiar with English history with the, the marcher lords on, on the frontiers of, of between England and, say, Scotland, uh, Wales, right? So this is sort of um, a march then is a, is a kind of translation of uh, a, a territory on the edge, in this case, between the edge of the empire and the, the territory of the papacy. Um, the contest between uh, 1115 or 1138, when the Comune develops, is whether um, Florence is going to be independent or autonomous uh, within the, the empire. Uh, and it isn't even up, up north where uh, the Lombard cities are, are more powerful um, until 1183 that the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa finally uh, accepts the, the practical autonomy of the, the Lombard cities with only sort of nominal imperial sovereignty. Uh, and Tuscany is a, is a bit slower. Uh, so there's a, um, uh, a league of Tuscan cities that are formed, uh, but really uh, Emperor Henry VI, right, uh, who, who reigns until 1197, uh, still has some measure of control in Tuscany. So the official sort of end date is, is traditionally uh, linked to um, the rise of uh, the Velve Emperor uh, Otto IV. Uh, but that's just simply a question of, of when the Tuscan cities were prepared to um, make an official break with imperial authority. Uh, and, and that's often uh, a question about uh, the existence of sort of military power uh, on the ground and administrative power on, on the ground. Um, so the 12th century then is sort of, well, I'd say it's juridically messy uh, as uh, is sometimes been described as the context of that the fruitful context of weak empire uh, plays out. Uh, and Tuscany is in many ways a beneficiary of its geography in that you know, Lombardy is much closer to the center of German power. Tuscany is much closer to the rising power of the papacy. Um, and so when uh, the, the emperor fails to, to really gain control of Lombardy, uh, Tuscany is, is largely shielded from, from imperial authority, uh, but it isn't totally done, you might say, in, until uh, 1266, that's the, really the last period of the sort of Ghibelline um, party in Florence. Uh, and that's because there's a, a second sort of struggle uh, starting in the 1230s under, under Emperor Frederick II, sometimes called Stupor Mundi. His power base is very different. It's in, in southern Italy, actually. Um, so uh, Florence is, uh, and I guess this is where, where we have this kind of messiness around uh, dates, right? You know, a very famous uh, history of Florence, and Florence the Golden Age of Jimmy Brucker, uh, starts in 1138 as an example. 1115 is often confidently asserted. Um, but, but others 
would point only to the to the primo popolo, um, the first sort of guild regime in 1250, as being you know um, a true break. So there's uh, there's some fuzziness there. Perhaps is the best way to put that. I I understand. Yeah, that's and that um, ambiguity has come up before on uh, on this on this show, like the transition period when Rome went from a uh, republic to an empire, for instance. There's different opinions out there, and that was covered. Uh, with Professor Richard Alston of uh, Royal Holloway uh, University of London, in 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 the past, so it's yeah, it's not uh, it's not unheard of with these. Uh, I find with these historical um, topics, it seems like in more um, more modern uh, more modern history, you, you get really clear on when when countries become uh, become countries, right? When you think of like uh, Canada, for 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 instance, as as an an, an example, there's a very specific date that the uh, that uh, became uh, constitutionally a uh, country. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we might even say there, right, the lingering attachment to the monarchy, right, creates these kind of strange, um, uh, small vestigial afterpieces. And that's maybe that kind of slow process whereby Canada, Australia, New Zealand uh, became first autonomous and then independent and then you know, have this sort of small attachment to the monarchy and the Commonwealth. Is, is that same kind of process of maybe an accelerated basis of um, the increasingly nominal quality of authority that we see in the whole Roman Empire in central Italy. Uh, so maybe your, your Canada analogy is actually quite a good one. Yeah, and let's talk about the the Holy Roman Empire a little bit more then. Let's go back there. Um, what would it, it, how would you describe then its status at, at this point in time? And uh, am I understanding that before... What, whatever the date is, right? You're saying uh, there's there it's it's reasonable to say 1115, right? I think it sounds like most people agree it's in the 12th uh, century. Um, am I also understanding it correctly that before the Republic of Florence, um, the 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 state? I don't know if that's the the most accurate term, but I'll I'll use it because I think you know what I'm saying. Um, was um, uh, was really under the the uh, control uh, of the Holy Ro- Roman Empire is that what what would have been the predecessor and in, in, in taking in the in the shape of a like a, um, a a march? Am I understanding that right? Yeah, conventionally yes. So so the empire um, has sort of multiple phases. We kind of need to go through all of it, but the short version on that is that it's a it's originally a conquest regime associated with. Um, Charles the Great Charlemagne, uh, officially dated to uh, 800, and it breaks up in the 9th century into three components. Um, the Western one becomes, uh, Frankie becomes France and the Low Countries, is a middle portion, which I suppose is the Low Countries of Rhineland and parts of Italy, uh, known as Lotharingia, and then there's an Eastern portion. Um, and it's the Eastern portion which really, in the, you might say, refounds or picks up the, the juridical legacy of the empire in the 10th century. So the empire sort of fallen to pieces. And uh, the, what had been the sort of eastern third of the empire picks up much of the, the previous sort of central third of Italy in, in the 10th century under a, the Etonian dynasty. And it's this... Um, German empires is sometimes called, uh, though it's, it's much 
larger geographically than, than the modern territory of Germany, um, that uh, is, is really a, quite a powerful regime in the 10th century uh, and, and really in some ways comes to grief um, in controversy with the papacy uh, in, in the 11th century. So we see a sort of weakening of, of uh, imperial authority there. Um, but of course, the, the Holy Roman Empire itself lasts in, until the Napoleonic Wars, uh, until in fact the first decade of the, the 19th century. <clears throat> the basic uh, ebb and flow of the empire becomes increasingly about the uh, dynastic power base of the emperor, that is, their, their families, particular territories or lands. And if the emperor has a powerful dynastic power base, very famously with the, the Austrian Habsburgs in uh, the, the 16th century, uh, then the uh, emperor can make all of these kind of um, tenuous legal claims much more powerful and real. Uh, and when the emperor's power base is weak or the empire is split between warring families, um, then the, the sort of nominal power of the empire falls to, to pieces to a large extent, uh, especially south of the Alps. So the, the empire has, especially in this period, very weak internal institutions. Um, and, and that's not uncommon in this period. In some ways, the, in the, say the 11th century, the empire is a stronger regime than in many other polities in Europe. But unlike in Western Europe, where uh, over the course of the high Middle Ages, um, states consolidated, it became much stronger. Uh, the, the contest with the papacy and, and the effort to control the Italian cities uh, meant that the periods of sort of imperial internal strength are more episodic. Uh, so yeah, you, you can definitely say that in the 10th and 11th centuries that Tuscany is, is part of that sort of imperial system of hierarchy. Um, so it's, we, we should not imagine the emperor uh, governing Tuscany particularly closely, but there are people who have um, imperial titles who are imperial vicars who have imperial, you know, who whose uh, authority ultimately depends uh, on, on a position granted by the emperor, either directly or to ancestors. And it's that world that Tuscany is wrapped into in the, in the 10th and 11th centuries. What did it um, want? What did the people of Florence, do you believe or know, uh, wanted? Did, did they want, did they want um, sovereignty? Did they want uh, some, some, something else? And, and this is a very... Um, uh, heavily um, period of time in terms of the percentage of people uh, in the Italian peninsula that would have been Catholic. Um, so, what can you also speak about what that relationship would have been if 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 it is if it is that they're they're trying to gain more independence or sovereignty or autonomy, how they could then still maintain what they felt was an appropriate relationship to uh, the Catholic Church? Uh, so, I mean, it, it's a great set of questions. Um, okay, so uh, in terms of the relationship to the Church, so uh, Matilda uh, had traditionally been associated with the Reform Papacy, and in many ways, Florence has been seen as a um, pro-papal, or we might say anti-imperial city from um, 
more or less its autonomy and, and certainly from the 12th century. This, I suppose, leads me to, to bring up, so what do the, the people of Florence want? Um, so the, the traditional uh, discourse about this is to divide the people of Florence into three groups. Um, this is, we might associate this with, with uh, a scholar like Jamie and others. Uh, between an elite, uh, a group that calls itself the people or the popolo, but which we should regard as uh, ranging from sort of big businessmen all the way down to like small artists and shopkeepers, and then the kind of masses or the unproperty um, group. Uh, that last group only sort of the majority of the male population. Uh, only briefly attempts to, to seize power in 1378, but is mostly marginalized and feared. Uh, but before that, the controversy is really between uh, the elite and um, the merchant, banking, and um, guild-based. We should imagine guilds as not just sort of artisans, but as business owners and sort of you might say the middle classes, uh, property-owning middle classes of uh, this booming city. Uh, and the, the traditional sort of argument is to say that the elite has a kind of politics which is based on factionism. Um, and this is between Gelfs and Gibbons. We traditionally associate the Gelfs as being pro-papal, although we might uh, see them maybe more effectively as anti-imperial, and the Ghibellines who are seen as sort of pro-imperial. And these factional alignments are mostly in this early period, especially, um, so I guess that the traditional story is to see the factional alignments as emerging from a, a murder that took place over a broken marriage promise in 1216, um, in which one of the Montes is assassinated or killed by um, this is, uh, and, and again, Jamie has pointed out this. This is to attribute to Florence, maybe to and to this particular uh, conflict, perhaps too much importance. But from the early 13th century, the, the elite is riven between uh, Gelts and Ghibellines, and that factionalism lasts really until uh, 13. 12, so there's a sort of rotation in power uh, with uh, Ghibellines in power um, in the, the late 1240s and again from 1260 to 66. But Florence is mostly run by Gelfs, and the Gelfs um, in turn split between white and black Gelfs, and then this is actually why Dante is eventually exiled. Um, and that, that's a story which really in some ways peters out um, by, by 1312. So, uh, the Gelfs and Ghibelins then have these um, broader alignments, these party factions that they're part of, which are connected to the broader politics of Italy and to the broader question of your relationship to the church and so forth. Um, the internal politics in Florence, so much of the people, the people who call themselves the popolo ones, uh, they see the city as, as riven by elite misrule, uh, by the, the, the kind of blood feuding and violence, when I think of it on, on a much larger scale, like the Montagues and Capulets. But um, 
involving much more extensive conflict between these sort of fortified aristocratic enclaves in the city uh, as being sort of terrible for doing business or living your daily life. Um, and the, the guilds effectively arm themselves uh, and develop a set of um, militia companies both in the city and in the Contado um, from 1250, which is often known as the sort of primo popolo. Uh, and the guilds will, will are really responsible for setting up the, the sort of organs of government. And, and in their initial set of interests, uh, the guilds are pro, are quietly pro-Gelf, uh, but mostly they're anti-magnate. So what do we mean by magnate? They, they mean they're anti sort of the violence of feudal aristocratic lords who regard themselves as above the law and engage in sort of killings and blood feuds in the street. Um, and so they're the, the people, we might say, in that broader sense, the, the popolo, um, really work, uh, and again, not totally done until through even the, the 13th century, work to bring what we might regard as sort of like functioning city government um, with it, their own sort of militia companies, their own military force to restrain the violence of lords both within the city and then in the countryside. Uh, and that's in part in support of Florence's very extensive commercial interests, uh, which are, are harmed, of course, by all of this um, disorder and, and sort of lawlessness by, by feuding lords. The papacy uh, generally tries to make peace between factions, especially um, between Gelf factions, between the whites and the blacks. Uh, but it, it also gets sucked into alignments with one side or the other, which is one of the reasons why Dante puts uh, a variety of popes in the Inferno, because they're sort of on the other side of these these political controversies. Um, so the uh, Florence is, you might say, broadly aligned with the reform papacy and against effective imperial rule, and it's broadly aligned Gelfs, especially eventually the black Gelfs who, who defeat the white Gelfs. But the um, it's also internally riven between this conflict between sort of feuding aristocratic lineages and their various connections in the city and countryside and um, guild regimes uh, that are attempting to sort of build public order in the city. Okay. Um, so it, it, it is complicated and violent, but we might say that this is in some sense how government in a way that we might recognize it is built from the ground up. Um, I mean, and these militia companies uh, involve uh, basically everybody between 15, every male between 15 and 70 um, in sort of armed companies. And when um, when there is sort of worldly violence that gets out of control, uh, they will do things like demolish all of their their houses. That's actually why we have the Gatsunova scenario here. Those are, that's where uh, a set of uh, uh, aristocratic houses had been before uh, being suppressed by the, the power of, of the guilds. 
So we might say the 13th century is the period that sees the, the rise of the um, internal military power of the guilds, and that, that of course, gives them some political power. Was it guild-run then? Was it, was it guild and merchant-run in the, in the early days? Would you say that in terms of describing um, the, the, the government? So in the, the, we can actually, this one we can, we can say with some confidence. In the uh, 12th century, there, there's sort of uh, an elite aristocratic uh, group um, called the, the Societas Militum. Uh, and a group of sort of big merchants um, and bankers and so forth uh, associated with a kind of merchant guild called the Kalimala. Uh, and then these are the ones who sort of advise the, the consuls who are appointed. Uh, that's uh, so it's very elite dominated and it has a, a kind of alliance between big merchants and uh, especially feudal uh, aristocrats. Um, people of knightly status, people with land holdings in the countryside. In the 13th century, um, there, there's sort of been, there are two key dates. So we think of the Primo Popolo as, as being in 1250 or the 1250s, uh, and that's what establishes some of these initial um, guild associations uh, and you know some of the, the original, how do I describe this? This is where the, the sort of armed neighborhood companies come in. This is where we, we have the, the sort of major guilds um, beginning to to assert power, and that really comes to to a hard stop um, in in twelve sixty when when the Ghibellines um, defeat the the Florentines at the Battle of Monteperti, another sort of important thing that shows up in, in Dante. The big event for the guilds coming to sort of into their own is, is traditionally seen as 1293 in the Ordinances of Justice. Uh, and there, uh, there is a, a new regime that is explicitly anti-magnate. Uh, and in fact, the, the way that they do it is they uh, say that there are a group of people who are basically kicked upstairs and said, uh, you are magnates or lords, and if you or any of your sort of people uh, committed crime, then punishments are much heavier for you uh, than they are for normal people. Uh, and you're not allowed to ever to be in office on a hereditary basis. And this is a, a set of anti-magnet rules which are eventually toned down. But this is the regime that begins to build the Palazzo Vecchio, uh, then known as the Palazzo della Signoria, and sets up um, the, the system of um, rotating uh, government by priors um, and a standard bearer of justice. And this um, system, so I mean that Florence is, has a, a very intricate system of councils, legislative councils, and um, a, a leading uh, group of, of six priors and, and what's called the standard bearer of justice, uh, which rotate every two months and, and the Florentines sort of constantly tinker with how this works. Um, but the, the basic principle is from, from all the guild regimes from, from 1250 all the way till 1382 and they, they go in and out of being effective. Um, political participation is confined to membership, to people who are members and guilds try to insist active members of 
uh, either the seven major or the 14 minor guilds. The major, we should, again, you know, there's a, a context of guilds elsewhere in Europe, which some people have associated with unions or with artisanal work. But the major guilds include people like the guild of the bankers and money changers or the guild of the judges and notaries, the guild of the wool manufacturers, these sorts of things. So the major guilds are what uh, we might think of now as being the sort of um, professional classes and what and probably appropriately called sort of uh, textile capitalists and bankers. It's the, the minor, the middle and minor guilds that are closer to our kind of vision of uh, artisanal guilds. So like butchers or shoemakers or smiths or innkeepers or these kinds of uh, still often property only kind of middle positions. Uh, and the, there is a, a continuing struggle within the guilds pretty much won by the major guilds over who is going to dominate the guild federation. Uh, most of the money is sort of linked to the major guilds and the money is key to, to raising the taxes to pay for Florence's military needs, which are many and various. Um, and the minor guilds who provide the kind of muscle in terms of the number of people who are going to show up on the street uh, to to enforce the guild regime's rule, especially um, who staff the kind of militia companies. So then we might see both the, the um, elite sort of uh, aristocratic groups as uh, factionalized between Gelfs and Ghibellines, and the guild regime as sort of split between major and minor guilds, uh, and within the guilds themselves between people who really run the show, who are often sort of big businessmen, um, and the people who are under their subordinate authority within the guild. So the guilds, it is that, that even the guilds, while being much more um, open politically, are still a, a very hierarchical uh, sort of wealth-based set of associations. Um, and yeah, so it's the guilds that, that set up the constitutional structure. But for most of the 13th and even the 14th century when the guilds are, are fairly powerful, um, the sort of practical power in the regime is, is associated um, with the elite. And they become very effective in managing all of these sort of complex constitutional arrangements that the, the guilds um, run, uh, both within the sort of constitutional order, but also through a set of sort of extra constitutional bodies wherein they exert power and authority. Uh, and the, the power of the elite is fundamentally based uh, in, the, in the 14th and 15th centuries on, on having the money to pay for the state. Um, and so there's this question about um, taxation and, um, and who's going to pay the bills for, for Florence's many wars. In the head of the states, that office was called priors, and is it that the 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 guilds? This I think you use the term federation um, uh, of guilds. They're the ones that are selecting the priors. Am I getting that right? That, that, that's right. Uh, and that group is sometimes known as the the lordship of the signoria. Um, so this is why it's the Palazzo della Signoria, uh, and the, uh, before it's the Palazzo Vecchio, uh, and and they have a 
uh, leading figure who is the Gonfaloniani, uh, which is the standard bearer of justice. Um, and that, that kind of title comes originally from um, Florence is divided in, in three different ways. Um, it's divided into sestos, into sixths, it's divided into quarters, uh, but most importantly, it's for us here, it's divided into um, 20 gonfaloni originally, uh, and those are, are uh, districts within the city associated with the militia company standard. Uh, and, and so the, the standard bearer, right, the leading standard bearer that becomes the, the official head of the, or the leader of the, the government. But it's a really um, conciliar government. And, and in its many and various forms, Florence has a, a constitutional order which is constantly being tinkered with as new councils are created and abolished. Uh, the sort of the key principle to appreciate is rapid rotation in office, right? Even long service offices are usually held for no more than a year. Most people are, many of these offices are, are uh, for two months or so. Uh, and um, most of the sort of important decisions are taken by councils. Uh, so even when they set up a sort of emergency war council, this is often a council of 10 people with very support staff and so forth. So there's not a, um, this is actually, of course, a weakness in the regime, but there's not a sort of centralized prime minister kind of figure. Um, instead, you have this, this fairly broadly diffused conciliar form of government um, with people who are sometimes not officially in power, but very influential, who will sometimes be more important than people who are on, on the councils. Those that... Um grew up in a democratic, a modern democratic um, country, um, probably most most democratic uh, modern countries, I think it's it can be tricky to get the mind wrapped around the conflation of uh, what it sounds like government and uh, business in this ca in this case. And, uh, and it's come up on the show in the past to the um, a, a government also um, uh, being a religious body as as well so that kind of conflation between between two uh concepts if you will right ha has come up but it's tricky right um to get to get the mind wrapped around if uh if if someone's grown up in uh, most democratic modern uh, countries today and we might say in terms of uh, how to pick office uh i mean you are in principle picking names out of the bag uh, this has changed a couple of times, but there are, um, in the 14th century, the, the different sort of groups of people become eligible originally individually and then as, as sort of named tickets, um, uh, which involve people with an appropriate split between major guildsmen and minor guildsmen and between the different districts of the city, um, the, or quarters of the city, that uh, there is an element of sort of participatory randomness to it. Now, there is still voting in that various councils have to uh, approve the insertion of the name in the bag every two or three years. This is sort of what's called a scrutiny committee that um, uh, takes nominations of people who, who might be eligible for office, and uh, if they get enough votes, then they get to go into the bag. But the actual who's actually in office from, say, like, you know, November, December, and, you know, um, 1355 or something like this, uh, will, will actually be based on, on how you, um, the sort of luck of the draw 
uh, among the eligible people. So it's um, not democratic in, in, uh, at all in, in a modern sense, but it is actually in some ways uh, much more broadly participatory. You know, lots and lots of people held some form of office. Um, and it's also open, so the, the money side, of course, is a corrupting negative side, and obviously they will run into that problem in a big way under the Medici in the 15th century. Um, but it's also unusually open for feudal Europe in that uh, you can rise in the guild simply by making money. Um, and while well, family background is not irrelevant, it's, uh, uh, you can basically become a, a part of the political order and hold high office. Um, just because you were a successful, you know, bank baker or wool manufacturer or whatever, um, and and that's that's quite unusual in in high medieval Europe. So it's it's a very different kind of political order. Um, as I said, not democratic, but maybe more socially open than than most anywhere else, um, even than, than other places like Venice, which have a, a much more closed aristocratic republic. There was a lot going on, um, yeah, in this in this uh, period and shor- shortly after. And before we wrap up, too, I want to add a, f- a footnote, and it's relevant too to this kind of ambiguity ambiguity in the early years. Um, I I had used the example of ca- Canada, um, you know, w- when it became constitutionally a country, and I I did a quick another cursory search because I didn't want to let it let, let it go before we before we wrapped up. But what's interesting, uh, and again, it's a, I'm putting the disclaimer out there, this is a, this is a cursory search. It, it, based on my, my quick search, it looks like um, Canada, as an example, became a country in one year. So it's very specific, uh, 1867, but it didn't constitutionally become independent until a different year, which is actually 1982. So even in the case of a more modern uh, example, it's not always um, one specific date that you have a, a, an, 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 a something that may not be an entity or may not be a state, and now it's this autonomous uh, state. So uh, even in modern times, it looks like there's examples of a transition occurring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's right. And, you know, and I know we're wrapping up here, but I would say this, this ideal of uh, sovereign and independent states we, we traditionally associate with the, the Peace of Vesalia in 1648 um, and was never fully realized. And in, in some ways, um, with both the League of Nations and the United Nations and other intergovernmental bodies like you and so forth, uh, we've walked back from that, that notion of, of unlimited state sovereignty. So we might see that, that notion of of sovereign states as being in some ways a 300-year kind of um, European aberration within a, uh, a period that had previously recognized sort of overlapping at different levels of um, authority between states and within states. And, and so, you know, this messiness is, is um, uh, also sometimes quite productive, and, and maybe that's part of what's worth bearing in mind for thinking about Florence's role within this weak imperial structure. Okay. It's always great chatting with you, Brian. Thanks for coming on the show again. A real pleasure. So Dr. Breggi's new book that I want to mention for everybody again is called Tuscany in the Age of Empire. I'm going to drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Brian and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.